1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nuchelle de Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Christina Wilson, who is a professor of art history at Clark University, where she researches American painting, photography, and modernist design from the interwar and postwar decades as well as the history and criticism of museums. Today, we will be talking about her new book, Mid-Century Modernism and the American Body, Race, Gender, and the Power of Politics in Design, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Welcome, Christina, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background? How did you come to your research interests and what led you to write this book?
0: Um, boy, uh, that is a <laughs> that's kind of a big question. I don't know how far back you want me to go. Um, I think um, maybe by way of sort of a quick answer, I would say that um, uh after college, I got an internship at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston in the Department of American Decorative Arts. And to be honest, I didn't even know what a decorative art object was. Uh, this was all a new world to me. And the idea of studying the past through the objects that people lived with and understanding history through the styles of objects as well as the forms that people found useful for living, all of that was just extremely exciting to me. And so I decided to go to graduate school to study design objects. Um, of course, when you're in your early 20s, you think, you know, everything and the world is like a very sort of black and white place. Um, and once I got to graduate school, I realized that I was actually interested in a lot of things, not just decorative arts and design objects, um, and that my interests were much more wide ranging. Um, and I actually became really frustrated that the fields are, dis- you know, are are defined. You know, why is architectural history different from art history, different from design mm-hmm. history? Um, and there are so many ways that there are really important connections and overlaps between them and in my research and scholarly work I'm often seeking to find connections and find ways of um, bringing these different fields into very active dialogue with one another and I think that many of us as professionals are wanting to do the exact same thing in our work. So uh, my first book was Livable Modernism, uh, Interior, Decorating, and Design during the Great Depression. Um, And that was a book that was really about, you know, American design history, um, very closely sort of looking at the 1930s. Um, But then my second book was The Modern Eye, Stieglitz, MoMA, and the Art of the Exhibition from the 1920s and the 1930s. And in that book, I really sort of was specific about wanting to put art history and design history into active dialogue. Um, So that's when I sort of took took on that as a sort of a specific agenda in my work. Um, And I came to this current book, the Mid-Century Modernism in the American Body Project, um, because I had always said that modernism in the 1920s and 30s was a setup for the popularity of modernism in the United States after World War II. And I began to think, I don't know, really, like, what is, why is modernism after World War II, why is, why does everybody think it was so popular? Was it so popular? Um, and I began to really uh, interrogate the ideological glossiness of that story of why modernism, modern design in particular, um, was so triumphantly successful in the post-war period. So that's really how I came to this current project. Mm -hmm. And
1: yeah, let's dive right into the book. Um, So right at the outset, in your introduction, you discuss your goal of excavating parallel histories or counter histories of modernism and modern design. And you hinted a little bit at your interests and goals and motivations just now, but can you briefly sketch out for listeners what established histories of design you hope to resist or challenge with your book? What what work do counter histories do and, and why do they matter?
0: Yeah, um, that is, I, I, I'm so glad you asked that. That's a really great question. Um, uh, and this is something that I, Um, You know, the process of this book was iterative and diving deep into various sections and then coming sort of back up and thinking, what is it that I'm trying to do? And, and, and really sort of a a circular process. I'm in front of my computer here, I'm drawing a circle um, with my hand. Um, So, you know, the the history that I am trying to trouble um, in this book is the idea of modernism as some kind of neutral style that enabled a liberated post-war suburban lifestyle um, that somehow modern design is inherently positive and that it's most important features were its affordability and its simplicity. Uh, you know, there's this sense that modernism is just like this sort of savior and, um, and 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 that it has this moment of triumphant acceptance in the post-war period. And for me, uh, when I was Working on this project, and I was sort of f- struggling with this sense of the, as I say, the ideological glossiness of that story. Um, the aha moment, or one of the key aha moments, came. When I read Diane Harris's book, uh, it's called Little White Houses, it's from 2013, and and some of the listeners might be familiar with this book, Um, and she argues that the banal architecture of post-war subdivisions really supported a racial identity of whiteness, um, that in effect this whiteness was ex-nominated. Um, and I actually use that term ex-nominated. Um, I, I'm taking it from or borrowing it from Roland Barthes, um, and I use it throughout the book, and that, you know, that whiteness is ex-nominated. And that means that whiteness is so pervasive that it really cannot be named or even identified as such. And that's Harris's proposition in her book. And I began to wonder... Is it possible that the mid-century modern designs that I am investigating are also invested in whiteness? Do they participate in a culture of whiteness? And that perhaps I have not seen this because I am a white scholar. So this was sort of the, this was like a big moment for me in this project. And a large part of this book is an exploration of the methods that I used to answer these questions. Um, and a short answer, I think the thing that you're asking about or in your question is that my research showed me that in the arenas where audiences were presumed to be white, and so these are arenas like. The marketing materials for the Herman Miller furniture company for example or maybe life magazine. Um, modern design really does seem to be used to shore up an identity of racial whiteness. It is used to do things like model cleanliness it's used to police behavior um, It's used to draw boundaries and it's in it's generally a kind of defensive. Um, But the interesting thing is that what I was thinking about in this work is that there are plenty of audiences who were potentially engaging with modern design in this period who were not white. And Mm -hmm. the question I was asking myself is, you know, so in some of these arenas where we have a presumed white audience, that's the message. But what about other audiences who are engaging with these designs, are they adopting these same associations? Uh, You know, what are other, what are people reading in modernism um, outside of this particular arena that we know to be largely white? And so what I end up arguing in my book is that modern design actually is circulating in a variety of different media markets. And in those different media markets, it has different symbolic messages. And so one in particular that I delve into deeply is the media market of ebony magazine, basically as a case study. And in ebony, modern design is much less frequently used to police behavior. Uh, And instead, it's much more about emphasizing things like bodily comfort or promoting social engagement and a sense of community and gathering. Um, And so this alternative set of associations is the kind of thing that I'm calling a counter-history. It's not that modernism never appears as a tool of social conviviality in places like white, uh, sorry, in largely white places like Life Magazine. Um, And it's not that it's never associated with control in places like Ebony. Um, It's just that, um, and it's not that these two stories are mutually exclusive. What's important is just that it's it's more to see the two of them in concert. Um, The power of the counter history is not that it replaces the dominant history, it's more to see the two of them side by side, almost in stereo. And the counter history exposes the values and assumptions that guide the dominant history. And so for me, one of the things that this shows is that how as a field design history has tended to prioritize things like innovations in new materials that allow for cleanliness (laughs) over Concepts like bodily comfort, um, and it also sort of leads to these other questions: how, like, ignoring bodily comfort is a way of actually implying perhaps control over the body. Um, so anyway, so th- I could keep going, but I think that's that's the ultimate message: is that there are there are, there's a, there are other stories about the meaning and symbolic power of modern design, and what's important is is not to sort of throw out one or the absolute distinctiveness of one versus the other, but rather seeing these existing um, in concert and putting pressure on one another.
1: Yeah, and that really comes through in your book, um, the urgency and the importance of blowing open the narrative to not just be one glossy, as you say, one glossy set of um, slick, Uh, stories is so interestingly put across in your book. Uh, And in reading the book, it becomes very, very clear that in order to tell this story, to kind of pull out this counter-narrative of your own, you've chosen your sources very carefully, not only for their intrinsic value or their own provocative quality, but also for how they contrast with each other, as you say. So you pay very close attention to things like author positionality and the intended audience to elicit the diverging ways in which modern design is presented to different audiences. So in one chapter, for instance, you examine a series of domestic advice manuals by an array of different designers and the ways in which their gender or their race inform the way in which they make their case. So could you talk a little bit about these manuals? What did they have in common? What were they for? How did they represent a diversity of lived experience?
0: Um, yeah, that is um, that is that is also a good question. I, I knew I wanted to talk about um, advice manuals because, um, they are such rich documents, uh, in and of themselves. And I was very, as you say, intentional and strategic in thinking about how I wanted to collect these and position them against one another. Um, and some of them I had known for a while and others were sort of newer to my orbit, um, and, sort of, and some of them I had known about for a while, but never to sort of think of how I, exactly I wanted, what kind of critical lens I wanted to put on them. So there are five books in that chapter. And um, so one of them is Russell and Mary Wright's Guide to Easier Living. One of them is, um, I think it's called Tomorrow's House. I feel like I should have these imprinted in my brain. Um, yeah, Tomorrow's House by um, George Nelson and Henry Wright. And then another one, the third one would be decorate your home for better living. That's by Mary Brandt. And then the final two are by Paul Williams, um, small home of tomorrow and the new homes of today. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is how, so there's five publications, four different authors, and there's all sorts of ways that they intersect and overlap. Um, You know, so the, Russell and Mary Wright and the Mary Brandt book really are targeting homeowners, so people who already own their houses and need to take care of their houses and perhaps redecorate their houses. And probably as a consequence, they're, they are more directed at women, women readers. Um, the George Nelson book, Tomorrow's House, and the Williams books are more for people who are fantasizing about maybe building a house from scratch, and then populating it with all sorts of stuff. Uh, And so therefore, those books seem to like have passages that are maybe for the husband who's maybe interested in planning, you know, and architecture, and then for the wife who's interested in interior decoration. And so there's this construct of a heteronormative couple and their stereotypical interest between planning and decoration and this kind of thing. So, you know, so I've got, so there are sort of the the books kind of divide up that way. Um, But then there are other things that are interesting and important. You know, Russell and Mary Wright uh, were a married couple and they marketed themselves as a couple, even though their book is really targeted to women. Um, So it's sort of a little ironic and they are white. Uh, George Nelson was a white man and an architect. So he's got a professional agenda, a professional orientation. Paul Williams was a black man and an architect. So he also had a professional orientation but is operating from a different racial positionality. And Mary Brandt is a white woman who wanted to be an architect, but because of her Mm -hmm. gender was not able to train to be an architect and ended up as a career in interior design and marketing. So again, there's all of these different kind of angles of positionality. Um, And I was really just interested in, yeah, sort of the different ways that these writers represented different approaches to the same question, the home after World War II, um, and, and that sort of that imagined marketplace of what the new buyer was going to be.
1: And so now let's talk a little bit about that potential new buyer who bought these books, what kinds of, and, and sort of to get into this question of control, what kinds of control did you do you see these manuals, each one of them attempting to exert, perhaps with reference to particular bodies or with reference to particular spaces in the home?
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, all of these books, uh, you know, have varying degrees of success. Uh, uh, I'm I'm trying to remember. So, um, Simon and Schuster, who's a you know, was a big publishing house, published um, Mary and Russell Wright's book and the George Nelson book. Um, and Scribner and Sons published Mary Brant's book. Uh, Paul Williams's book was published by a smaller press, L.A. based, uh, but still it had a national audience and by the time of his second book, he's referring to his first book as a best-selling book. So, um, and and it was getting reviewed nationally in architecture magazines. So, um, so I, there's, uh, there I think there's some confidence in the level of national readership for all of these publications. But something that I was really intrigued with in all of them is a discourse of control. And obviously, every um, guide and every book that is attempting to give you advice about how to live your ha- live in your home is obviously going to be exerting control. Um, so, it's just even that sort of bedrock sense of like setting expectations that right there is a control level of control. Um, but there are some also some very interesting ways that control just kind of percolates through these books. Um, one thing that I was very interested in, for example, is just how um, control appears in the way that the house gets conflated with the human body. And then control of the house is like control of the human body and George Nelson, this happens a lot in his writing. And although the book, sorry, Nelson's book is by Nelson and Henry Wright. Uh, but it seems that it was largely the, the, the text seems to be largely in the voice of Nelson, which we know from other texts written by Nelson. So that's why I tend to short shorten it down to just him as the author. Um, but he is, you know, he's frequently doing things like, um, you know, uh, putting the sort of talking about the kitchen is very smelly and needing to be, you know, res, you know, needing to be confined, um, you know, or that the or also that the kitchen and the toilet or the bathrooms are very, very noisy. And how can we um, constrain and confine those spaces so that they so that the smells and the noises Um, are not sort of spreading out into other spaces of the house. So there's this sense of like the body needing to be contained and restrained. Um, Mary and Russell Wright uh, similarly are just sort of layering their house in so many um, sort of lists of what you need to do to keep your house clean uh, that it is quite frankly exhausting to read the book. Uh, and they are also similarly kind of turning the house into a space that, um, you know, that that has sort of overtones of the body also and sort of all of the cleanliness of the body. Um, and I think there's also, there's a persistent sort of sense of control just in terms of thinking about how you might lay out your house um, and and just sort of like th- this sense of having somebody peering over your shoulder or even providing a bird's eye view into your house and um, seeing all of these, all of the objects in your house arrayed in one sort of in one room and who's kind of looking over and providing a kind of surveillance of your spaces. And in fact, the end papers for my book are... Are this kind of um, surveillance view into the space of a house, um, which is intended to kind of imply that sense of like of, of control. Um, you know, throughout throughout my analysis of these books, there are times when I was tending to find Paul Williams as an author to be less judgmental and a little bit more inclusive in his approach, uh, which certainly is possibly, uh, it's possible to attribute that to his position as a black man uh, in a very competitive professional landscape, mm-hmm. seeking to find clients who are in a variety of racial positions, um, but certainly wanting to build a client base who is white and um, sort of working across a racial divide. Um, and so there's a, a perhaps a, a sense of greater inclusiveness and less judgment in his writings. And yet at the same time, it, even this sense of sort of power and scopic scopic control appears even in his book. Um, and so he, you know, he, along with Mary Brandt are both talking about laying out your rooms in a grid and then, you know, with the furniture as little pieces on a game and sort of moving it around and sort of creating this, you know, kind of master plan of what all of the spaces in your house are going to be like so that you can pass through the spaces as Easily as possible, so um, so control happens in all sorts of ways in these books. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, so the way your book is divided up, it is in the first half. There's an up- unpacking of an array of texts that introduce modernism to readers, and so far we've talked a little bit about the manuals that you examine, uh, but in this Second chapter, you then also compare two major popular magazines, Life and Ebony, and you talked a little bit before about how you see the differences in the two magazines and how they lay things out. It's not a stark difference. Sometimes they do some some of the same things, but there are some really interesting differences in how they present modernism to their audiences. And so in this chapter, you take up a few different themes, how the designer is presented to audiences, not just in writing, but also visually. You also talk about the designer-client relationship, and you talk about user comfort. And then there's even distinctions in the depiction of labor. So how do these two magazines diverge in their presentation of designers and users and the designs themselves? And what larger race-based and even class-based arguments do you see the two magazines making about modern design?
0: Um, yeah, that's a, uh, that is an exciting and definitely complex question. Um, and I will also mention that I'm glad that you <laughs> understood logic of the book overall because there was actually a moment when i was thinking about completely reordering the chapters um, into an entirely different order so um, yes i yes the first two chapters ended up being about the written materials and the latter two chapters about um objects but there was a point when it was going to be different um so yeah so So Ebony. So what I did for this chapter is I was comparing Ebony and life in the decade of the 1950s. And it's important to know that Ebony was published as a monthly and life was a weekly. So there's a different volume of pages um, to study. Uh, And for this chapter, I went through every issue of Ebony from from 1950 to 19 to the end of 1959, Um, and I went through one to two issues per month of Life, but I did not go through every week or every single issue of Life. Um, So anyway, so it was a lot. It's a lot of material, Um, and you know, on the whole, I would say that these two magazines definitely share. Some large goals. Uh, they're both pursuing general interest subject matter and they're both using photo-based journalism. Um, however, there are some real fundamental differences, I think, in editorial philosophy that ultimately shape how modern design works in each. For example, you know, Ebony really has a person-centered approach to its journalism. And this meant that articles about modern designers and modern artists showed the person doing the work of designing or making art. And it was really, it it seems to have been vitally important in their editorial philosophy to show the creative person actively engaged in their work. And this might not seem so unusual, but in contrast, Uh, this is an approach that is much less common in life magazine and in life, what we tend to see are designers or artists that are perhaps shown with their finished product, but sometimes not even, and it's just more a sort of a studio portrait of the artist. So that's a big difference. Um, so it's a, a sense of sort of being engaged with the work is something that's really important in Ebony. Um, but you also asked about class, and I'm really glad you did. Um, this was something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, in this the research part of this chapter, uh, the first thing I did was simply like going through these magazines and documenting where I saw modern design, and then later I was going back and thinking about where these instances were and what was the surrounding context for each occurrence and looking for points of commonality. And in life, a recurring trope around modern design is this sense of affordability. So you're seeing Mm -hmm. modernism being used, you know, as a style in an article where someone's converting their garage to a TV room um, in a very small, modest, you know, uh, suburban house example. Uh, And in Ebony, interestingly, that broad claim about affordability is just really not nearly as prominent. In fact, um, if you were going to put a class label on it, modernism much more frequently appears in arenas that are glossed as upper class or elite. So, for example, modernism is the style of a $200,000 custom-designed home of a doctor. Um, so, and $200,000 for a home in 19, the 1950s is a lot of money. Um, so I do think that this points out uh, a couple of things. I, I think uh, uh, one particular thing is that it points out the limits of the cultural imaginary that the Johnson Publishing Company Was operating under at this time, Uh, John H. Johnson was the publisher of Ebony, and he believed in a model of racial equity that could be achieved through individual hard work, uh, the consumer acquisition of goods, you know, buying the best to achieve the best, and that is inherently um, so. That that is that that's going to kind of limit necessarily. um, I think a bit of the the. A a sense of the possibility of modernism operating, perhaps in a a sense of everybody being entitled to it. Um, So that is that was definitely a dominant class difference that I noticed. The other thing
1: that's really different about um, magazines is that, unlike manuals, they are multi author and they also have advertisements. And you talk a little bit about how you see the role of advertisements. As contributing to the construction of these images, um, the construction of modernism and modern design. So, can you share a little bit about that with uh, listeners? Um, the role of ad- the role of advertisements in the construction of the modern.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think advertisements are ultimately really, really important in this chapter. Uh, you know, I came to think of them. I mean, it's sort of like when you're reading a magazine, you're flipping the pages. You're not, you know. Sometimes you're reading it backwards. Sometimes you're reading it forwards. Sometimes you're just like, you know, you open it up to any old page. It's very much the way we engage with social media today, you know. And like you're scrolling mm-hmm. through a feed, and you're like, oh, is that someone's post or is that an ad? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's like, and so there's there's a sense of um, uh, there's a sense of it doesn't. It, in the reader's mind, it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not something is an ad or if it's editorial. So the palimpsest, you know, or the kind of the the messiness between the editorial and the advertising is very much something that I was interested in. Um, at the same time, I was also trying to be rigorous and just. You know, and and be mindful of where my material was coming from, and so I did. You know, think about sort of specifically what are ads saying, um, and you know, and ads are very important. Um, so, uh, in in life, a, a very interesting thing is that modernism appears most consistently. Modern design appears most consistently in advertisements for cleaning products. Uh, and for products that have to do with like, you know, painting your walls or recovering your floors. So like making your home clean in this very kind of foundational sense. Uh, and the use of a phrase like clean lines or, uh, you know, like the, all of the ads are are routinely sort of playing on that, the clean lines of modernism and the clean lines of the car and the clean lines of, you know, of, of uh, uh, you know, of, of the furniture, you know, are all sort of, you know, and, and then of your vacuum, you know, the, your vacuum cleaner can make your home clean, like the clean lines of your furniture. Like all of this is kind of, you know, wrapping all wrapping up together. Um, and, you know, it, it's such a commonplace today to talk about modernism as being very clean, but I, I came to think of this as actually a very loaded, a very loaded way to talk about modern design, um, any design. Um, And, you know, because cleanliness connotes control um, and its control over the suburban house space in all of these depictions that are, that we're seeing in the advertisements in life. And it's, so it's control of the space and it's um, exclusion. It's, you know, about sort of exercising this kind of uh, complete, um sort of a tyranny of cleanliness uh, on these you know in these spaces and keeping everybody out um everybody else all the dirt out and all of the others out of the space of the lily white suburbs uh, that are being depicted in um, life um and interestingly in contrast in ebony magazine, uh, there are ads for cleaning supplies, but they don't have modernism in them. Like it's just the same constellation just does not appear in ebony. Uh, and instead where modernism appears, I mean, modernism appears in different ways, but something that I was particularly interested in and in the book I paid particular attention to ads that had a distinctive layout and concept that appeared in ebony and had no, reflection or no precedent or no corollary in life and in those ads modernism really is operating as this tool that um, facilitates a kind of social gathering and a social getting together uh, and it's so it's about social comfort it's about bodily comfort it's about class it's a mark of class comfort so it's really the modern modern furniture, is doing a completely different thing. It's really about bringing together rather than keeping out. And it's about ease rather than control. Um, So it's it's a very different set of associations that percolate to the surface.
1: I really appreciate how in the first half of the book, you really lay out how modernism is presented to audiences through different kinds of media. And then in the second half, what you do is you really dive into the physical products of modern design. Um, You look at this one chapter in particular, the Herman Miller Furniture Company and its design, and you specifically look at the design of George Nelson and the Eameses. And They are so much a part of design history canon, if you will, and you unsettle their work in such interesting ways. So you describe what you call empathetic forms of furniture that are ergonomically designed to fit a user's body. And yet you also discuss how they constrain the body as a result. How do you see the relationship between visual empathy and control in the Herman Miller designs you examine?
0: Yeah, so um, when I was thinking through these designs um, and, and thinking about these objects, um, I was thinking a lot about this question of what is the experience of looking at them and imagining the body interacting, and thinking about this very question of what is the what is the concept of empathy? Um, you know, empathy being this idea of sort of you know the imagined physical body and sort of this physical identification with, um, and and just thinking that you know when when we're thinking about design objects, I mean there's been a lot of theorizing around empathy and architecture, um, but when we're thinking about design objects, there's there's an added energy. Um, And immediacy and importance, because it's not just how the object looks like it might be used, but there's also this question of how it actually physically is to use. And how an object looks like it might be used and how it physically is to use are two different things, and they are not actually always aligned. Um, And so as I was puzzling through this or thinking through this, I sort of decided to just sort of isolate them as two different terms, visual empathy and physical empathy. So visual empathy being how an object looks like it should be used or how it invites us visually to be used. And then physical empathy, how it, what is, at, what is in fact the physical experience of it being used. Um, And, you know, we've all had experiences where you look at an object or chair and you're like, oh, that looks so comfortable. And then you sit in it and it's absolutely not comfortable at all, you know, and and the reverse happens. Um, And, and in fact, you know, empathy becomes a way um, that objects get involved in the exercise of power, because they, you know, because an object that is unpleasant to use is then sort of demanding something from us or an object that tricks us into using it because you think it's going to be one way to use. And then it sort of engages with us physically a different way. Like these are all ways that these inanimate objects end up exerting a kind of physical power over us. And, 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 and that's a, that's a, a major aspect of living in a world of, produced, um, uh, of of mass produced objects around us. So anyway, so that's what I I was thinking about. Um, And I got, um, and I was thinking about visual empathy and, um, and visual empathy is also tied up with this idea of affordances, um, or it's related to this idea of affordances, I should say, um, which is, again, an idea that you look at an object and you understand how it should be used. Um, and so when we look at something like an Eames chair, which is, you know, a plot, the plywood Eames chair, which is, you know, the molded plywood, uh, and we can see the curves in it and we can see the ghost of the figure, uh, of the body that sat in it before us, we can sort of tell sort of where our body should go when we look at it and so there's a sense of visual empathy that these are objects that invite us and they seem to tell us and welcome us to sit in them but they also are relying on this idealized concept of a body because what if your body doesn't fit there uh and you know there are bodies that are sort of you know that are that are too large for an Eames chair, too small for an Eames chair. There are bodies that want to sit in Eames chairs in ways that the chair does not want you to sit in it. Like you cannot slouch in an Eames chair. You, you know, you must, or if you're going to recline, you can only recline in the particular angle that it is, you know, angled at. So there's all sorts of actual restrictions and expectations uh, in the design of the chair. And I was thinking about how these molded plywood chairs, um, you know, the the, um, technology for them came out of the technology for the plywood splints that they created for World War II. And, you know, those are modeled. A a splint is a healthy leg that then holds in place the unhealthy leg. Um, It basically makes the unhealthy leg invisible and sort of strives to make the unhealthy leg Um, healthy. And so I was just thinking about how, in a way, what the Eames chair kind of does the same thing, which is that it only makes visible the ideal body, the ideal body for the chair. And it renders completely invisible any body that is not ideal for that chair. So it's actually quite restrictive uh, and prescriptive. And as such, it exerts a high level of control I'll also mention that those chairs seem to be all about stillness, that they don't really let you move around in them because they are fixated or, you know, the curves are such that you really can only sit in one way in order to Mm -hmm. match the curves and to sit in them. And, you know, oftentimes I give talks about, you know, showing these designs and everyone's like, oh, yeah, I've seen one of those before. or Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't know that that was like an actual design because, you know, basically every elementary school chair that in the United States that anybody has ever sat in is indebted in some way To the Eames chairs, I mean, the chairs that I grew up sitting in in the 1970s and 80s, and the chairs that my daughter sat in in elementary school. I mean, I just, I mean, I'm only speaking from an N of one experience, but I just feel like these chairs, you know, have populated our landscape. And there's a reason why they populate elementary school rooms, which is that they keep children still. So anyway, there's a lot of control there.
1: Yes, definitely a lot to unpack. And I really appreciated what you were doing with that chapter, that real uncomfortable unsettling of this slick narrative of, of their work. Uh, and as part of that analysis, you also look at their publicity materials, um, the publicity materials of the Herman Miller Company, you and that's also a little uncomfortable and unsettling to read, honestly, because you pay very close attention to the use of non-Western indigenous artifacts as these exotic accessories in corporate showrooms. You also discuss the use of indigenous cultural artifacts as decorative objects in the last chapter as well. And Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you present this commodification of other cultures as part of the modern design movement in these two chapters.
0: Um, Yeah, that's that is it's a big this is a big and very complicated topic. And to be honest, I feel like I really um, uh, I. I I was, I I was happy to start a conversation and this is a conversation that must continue um, to be interrogated. And there is so much more to be done with this. Um, So uh, if this book opens the door to this conversation, that that's, then I, then I will be very happy about that. Uh, I, the starting place for this was thinking about How race is conceptualized and the idea that racial whiteness is is understood um, negatively, that it's understood in opposition to another race and that there is no white race without uh, the construction of an other. And that's, you know, that is the defensive position of whiteness in the West. And and I was wondering about why designers like George Nelson or Charles and Ray Eames put non-Western artifacts in their showrooms. And I think it it, it, it it's operating, it's that same sense of an interest in binaries that uh, you only can understand the one when you've got something else that represents clearly an other. Um, and I do want to just mention here that, you know, I I... I George Nelson's practice and the Eames's practice are definitely two different things. And in the book, I do pay some attention to the differences in those practices. So I don't want to like say I'm lumping them together. Um, mm-hmm. And in a way, I actually was more interested in what Nelson is doing than what the Eameses are doing. There are problematics for, for both. There's problem, problems in what both of them are doing. Um, But, you know, ultimately, these showrooms seem to be constructed um, around the power of binaries, you know. So what happens, you know, we can see what the modern design is when we've got incorporated into the showroom something that it is not. And so, you know, the object is for sale. The decorative accessory is not for sale. Like, that's the starting place right there. Like, this is for sale. This is not for sale. And then we've got, you know, machine versus handmade. We've got the abstract form versus the body. Embodied the embodied form. We've got the intellectual versus the sensual. and then ultimately the racial white versus the racial non-white. I mean, this is this is very, it seems very clear that there's that kind of a binary logic that is going on um, and is helping to helping to define negatively, what modernism, how modernism should be understood. So this is one of the ways that um, that modernism is working in these in these arenas for white audiences to be defined as white. Uh, and 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 the appearance of non-western and indigenous artifacts on the in the pages and on the walls of, model rooms and real rooms in Ebony and Life, which I talk about in the final chapter, is really complex and fascinating and, uh, you know, and in some ways, her sort of carries on the story of the Herman Miller showrooms, but also in the examples of how non or in particular um, African artifacts are being um, displayed and used in Ebony's interiors there are some terrific examples of a much different relationship between the homeowner and the artifacts on the walls and uh, a much uh, a, a much different sense of wanting to kind of own a history and be connected to a history um, and to a, a sense of a of a sort of a, of a larger cultural story rather than an individual isolated, Thing that is being presented as a quote-unquote curio. That's a mm-hmm. big, that's a big difference.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I really enjoyed that last chapter, the way it focuses on the marketing of these decorative accessories for domestic life from, you know, as you say, these these forms of art that can be hung up on the wall. They sort of, you know, receive this mark of, you um, You know, a distinction that these are okay to put up. Uh, But then you also focus on these cocktail glass collections and ceramic household objects. Uh, And they're such small objects, but you show so clearly how great a form of social pressure they exert on consumers to walk this, you know, knife edge between conformity and individuality. So can you talk a little bit about how you view these objects as a window into the fraught social world of the mid 20th century U.S.?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, first of all, it's great to hear that you find this interesting because I love <laughs> I love objects like these. Um, and I feel like these are these are the kinds of things that just um, always get me super excited and energized. And, you know, I mean, glassware is an amazing window through which to understand how a society uh, thinks of itself because um, and, and it's, it's control on so many different levels because it's, it's control in the sense of how large glasses are for different kinds of beverages. Like, first of all, just that right there, like, Who says that you should drink this much water as opposed to this much wine as opposed to this much whiskey? Like it's just, you know, that right there is just an interesting concept. Um, Or this much water as opposed to this much iced tea. Like, like, why, why is that a distinction that needs to be made? Um, So there's, all of that is fascinating. Um, But then secondly, um, I mean, that's control in terms of what liquids go into one's body so there's the body once again but then secondly there's this level of social uh, graces and being the hostess who needs to you know heaven forfend that you would serve wine in a pilsner glass for beer like wouldn't that just be like the worst thing you know so there's this sense of all of these specialized glasses that you need for each different kind of beverage um so it's not just that they have different sizes, but they have different shapes and they're all these specialized things. And like, at you know, at the sort of wildest, I think I found that, you know, like 19 different glass shapes that, you know, that a person was supposed to have in their house. And, you know, but to make it really simple, you could just have six different ones. And anyway, so this is this is just a great window into social expectations and, um and a sense of um, um, it, its competitiveness. It's, but it's also the power of marketing, and um, and a sense of, uh, but also a sense of social responsibility. I mean, if you want to be demonstrating your relevance and your meaning in a community, then you want to be able to participate in these social rituals. So it's not just keeping up with the Joneses. It's it's also, you know, a, um, demonstrating that you matter to this community, um, being able to provide for your guests, uh, which is a really, that's an important thing um, for people. Um, I mean, to this day, even if we're serving everything in plastic glasses now or something. Um, So so anyway, so I feel like that's um, I feel like, uh, you know, those are great ways that um, we can think about glassware as demonstrating control. um, And then there's more to say about, um, you know, the actual designs and then also the sort of the enameled designs that go on to uh, some of the ones that I talk about in the book. Um, and, and I was also interested with the stoneware um, by uh, the American uh, the Associated American Artists is just thinking about how race gets wrapped into those designs and to the names of those designs and how um, race begins to um, enter um, uh, what was a presumed white, market for those wares, um, for objects that are serving objects in the house. And so it's another way that, um, it's another way that, um, that race is present, um, always present in the objects, um, the design objects that surround us.
1: Thank you. I mean, one thing I really like about these interviews is that you kind of get to, um, as an interviewer, I get to dive into the um, the workings of how the book was put together and some things that are most important to you, the things that really, you know, make you tick as you as you put the whole writing together. And so one question I have that's a bit more methodological, a little less about um, how each chapter makes its argument is, I want to revisit one of the 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 comments that you made earlier in the interview where you sort of talked about the structure of the book and it didn't necessarily uh it wasn't necessarily obvious that it was going to be organized the way that it was and as i was reading the book another thing that really kept coming up for me was just the way you organized your sources i kept thinking about you know, how, you know, how crucial it seems to be your selection of sources for how you arrived at your own counter history of modernism, and the way in which you you engaged in your visual analysis of them. And so I was really wondering about how you chose your material, how you decided to organize it, and whether there were materials that you, you know, may have started looking at, but then decided that they didn't fit, whether things that you were looking at, and then they just had to be jettisoned. How did you kind of even start putting this whole array of sources together in the way that you did in this book? Um, I really feel like listeners will appreciate being able to hear some of the the ways in which we we I guess struggle as authors uh, and you know as writers to kind of you know um, arrive at what I believe is a very beautifully and um, I won't say slick, but very, you know, <laughs> well-organized book. But, you know, what's left out then is all of the, the 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 messiness. So I want to kind of bring some of that messiness into the interview and sort of uh, if you have anything to share about sort of how how that process worked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. Yeah. Um, The messiness, I I feel like there's a lot of messiness still in the book. So um, it's nice if you don't entirely see it as completely messy. Um, I, um, I, you know, uh, so, for example, with regard to the organization of the chapters, I did have a moment when I thought to myself, you know, I'm talking so much about George Nelson as an author in the chapter about advice manuals. And then I'm talking about him as a designer in the chapter on Herman Miller, uh, you know. M- but they're ch- right now, you know, they ended up being chapters one and three, and maybe they should be next to each other. Uh, also, the Ebony and Life chapter is chapter two, but there's a lot of Ebony material in that last chapter because there was so much good visual material that I found in Ebony about how people were decorating their homes. And, and so I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I should put the ebony chapters more together. Uh, so that was, that was the struggle. Like I had this, this point in the project when I was thinking, I don't know, maybe this, you know, the, the plan that I have, which I ended up staying with the one, two, three, four, I was thinking maybe I should, you know, maybe it should be one, three, two, four. Um, and, uh, and I really sort of, you know, sat with that and my own mode is to like, write out my rationale and so i sort of like journaled about it for a couple of days and thought about it and and ended up deciding that it made more sense to stick with the plan that i was working with but um anyway so that's a little bit of the messiness and i also liked the fact that it ended up creating more through lines um in the narrative um but yeah in terms of the stuff that i jettisoned i mean way way back at the beginning of this project i was thinking more about um both silverware, which is a little bit more elite uh, than the glassware that I ended up writing about, and I was also thinking about plastic plates, um, which mm-hmm. is more on the par of the the cost, the price level of the of the um, of this, of the glassware that I ended up writing about. So, um, and the silverware um, for the reason that silver is just really an expensive object just ended up not seeming quite right, um, as a subject. Um, another thing I did spend a lot of time early in my research, uh, looking at shelter magazines, uh, especially Better Homes and Gardens and House Beautiful, um, Better Homes and Gardens as a more, uh, as, as a, it's a, it's a different price point than House Beautiful. Better Homes and Gardens was, I forget, I want to say it was like maybe 15 or 20 cents per issue. And House Beautiful was more like 35 cents an issue. And I might be wrong on that, but that's just an approximate to sort of show you how different they were in terms of their, their price point and therefore their intended audiences. I was really interested in how modernism is appearing in both of those magazines, but they are both operating in an exclusively white imaginary. And mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. is no I could not find another, I, I and this may be my own white blindness, but I could not find another magazine that targeted a a non-white audience that was really sort of shelter magazine focused from that period. And so I didn't feel like there was a there was the right story to construct. Uh, and that's why I ended up Um, comparing Ebony and Life because the two of them really make sense as a dialogue, whereas there was nothing really to compare or to put into dialogue with Better Homes and Gardens and House Beautiful. So those are some things that ended up on the wayside.
1: Yeah, this is such a great insight into your process and, you know, just the, the ongoing task of writing. I particularly like the Uh, the act of journaling to, to figure out what things are going to go well, this sort of conversation with yourself. Um, Well, thank you so much for spending time chatting about this book. Uh, Before I go, before we go, I wanted to know, well, what are you working on now or or what might be next for you?
0: Um, Yeah, well, I have uh, a couple of things that are um, sort of on the burner. Uh, I am uh, just getting myself organized um, and hoping to work with a variety of wonderful colleagues uh, on a anthology on race in design history. Um, so that um, will be a bigger project. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to working on that. And I'm also, um, I've done um, a lot of, or a, a bit of work on the designer, Ad Bates, who is featured in the book. Who I discuss him in the book and I've published an article about him, but I would like to do more work on his career because there is more to be said um, about his work. And um, he's an extraordinarily interesting, um, creative Person in the twentieth century, and um, so I'd like to like to do more on his career. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's great. I was really struck by that image. It's it's a pity that this is a podcast, but the the image that you provide in the book of him in his workspace, and I believe that his his brothers behind him. Yeah, it's it's just such a rich image uh, in in the in the in the second chapter. Um, and it contrasts so interestingly with the with the image you provide of um, Charles Eames, this sort of almost immobile stick figure, whereas the, the mobility, the movement, that the that the, the act design that that happens in the ebony image of Ad Bates is is so rich. I, I really enjoy that image, so I'm very excited to hear that you'll be working more um, on his on his design and on his career. So thank you again for taking the time to talk about your book in such wonderful detail. Uh, and before we go, I just wanted to ask, where might listeners
0: find you or follow you or learn more about your work? Uh, yeah, well, I don't um, I don't have a huge social media presence, but I do have an Instagram account. So it's at Christina Wilson Art Design, all one word. Um, and that's me. And I post there. Uh, with some frequency, a lot about what um, I see in the world of art in Worcester um, and uh, the exciting things that my students are doing, engaging with the art world in Worcester. So, and other cool design things that I see. So. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to following you and
1: thank you so much again. This was an incredible conversation. I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nushel. This was really fun.
1: This discussion of Mid-Century Modernism and the American Body, Race, Gender, and the Power of Politics in Design by Christina Wilson, published by Princeton University Press in 2021, was brought to you by the New Books in Architecture channel of the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts.